Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is the man who was drafted by the New York Mets in the second round of the 1991 Major League Baseball June Amateur Draft out of Fairfax High School in Fairfax, Virginia. He spent six years in the majors and appearing in over 100 games. He, along with fellow Mets minor league pitchers Jason Isringhausen and Paul Wilson, were dubbed Generation K by sports writers and fans. At age 20, he was considered one of the top prospects in baseball. Injuries would take its toll. He spent some time here on Long Island, as in, in 2004 with the Long Island Ducks. He he uh, led them to, uh, to a championship, and he was an all-star, winning the clinching game. It is a thrill to welcome number 21 in your program, Bill Pulsifer to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Bill. <laughs> nice, to have, nice to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome to have you here. Now, you come from a military family. You're born in Fort Benning, Georgia. Your family frequently relocates, including to Germany, before settling into Clifton, Virginia. I remember having basketball Hall of Fame player David Robinson on our show, who also moved around a lot due to the military family. He said that sports and the fact he was good at it made the transition from town to town a lot easier for him. Was it the same with you? I don't think it uh, could be said any better. I, I agree 100%. It, uh you know, make kind of forces you to uh, to get out there and to get to know some people, and then when you act, uh, are pretty good at it, um, it kind of kind of draws attention to you a little bit and makes it a little bit easier for you to uh, to fit in with uh, the new crowd. If you're uh, a little, you know, have some talent and show some uh, some promise in a sport, then um, obviously David Robinson was a big man as well. You know, being <laughs> seven feet tall, I'm not quite that tall, but uh, I was, you know, I was always a bigger kid. Coming through, uh, coming through school and going through high school and that. So uh, I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> so you excel in high school. And as a senior at Fairfax High School, you're named the All-Metropolitan D.C. Player of the Year as a pitcher and center fielder. You also excelled at basketball. But baseball was your main focus. Why did you eventually switch your main focus to baseball over basketball at that time? Uh, you know, I think that baseball was always uh, the main focus. Um, obviously, being six foot three, six foot four, and playing with your back to the basket uh, as a high school player doesn't lead to um, a great, great future as a basketball player. <laughs> Usually, at that height, you should be facing the basket. But um, being six foot four in the high school that I went to, you were, uh, you know, you were a power forward or a center type player. So uh, I don't think I had much of a future on the on the basketball court playing with my back to the basket at six four. So um, you know, baseball was always my first love. Basketball was something that I did. Uh, that I did love and did enjoy a lot, but I think I just had a little bit more of uh, inclination, a little bit more talent on the baseball field than I did on the basketball court. So at age 17, you're offered a full scholarship to Old Dominion <clears throat> University, but the day before you're supposed to leave for college, you decide to sign with the New York Mets after being chosen in the second round of the 91 Major League Baseball draft. What went into that decision, and what was the family <laughs> conversation about during that? Because that, that's a big-time decision at that point. Well, you know, I kind of felt when I got drafted, um, I was going to lean towards uh, going on to play professional baseball. But obviously, you want to try to make the make as much money as you possibly can uh, out of the draft, uh, not knowing what your future would be, and if you were ever going to even get an opportunity to play at the major league level. 
being that you know 99% of guys that sign a professional contract never play a day in the major leagues anyway. So it was, um, you know, it was a financial thing as much as it was anything else. Uh, obviously, I had a great opportunity to go to Old Dominion and, and go to school for free and, and advance my education as well as playing. But um, it basically it boiled down to it trying to trying to get with it. The most that I possibly could out of them on that first hit. I know it sounds sounds a little uh, I don't know how, what what you want to call it, but um, it is what it is, and that's basically what it boiled down to is just trying to to get the best offer that I could before I did uh, eventually sign. So immediately you put up impressive numbers in the Mets A level minor league system, posting a two point eight four ERA for Madge Jim Thrift. You move up on the Mets minor league system. You're selected to be a Double A Eastern League All Star. You lead the uh, Binghamton Mets to the playoffs, where you threw the first no hitter in fifty seven years in Eastern League playoffs, September twelfth. Helped out by a, a really nice play in the sixth inning by Ray Odonias and Edgar Alfonso. What do you remember most about that night and the no-hitter, and at what point did it start getting nerve-wracking? Like, you know, we, we all hear about that and, you know, how teammates start staying away from you. T- take us back to that night. Well, it was obviously a very special night um, for multiple reasons. One, obviously being in the finals uh, with the team that the year prior we had uh, lost in the finals. It was the majority of the team that came back and moved from St. Lucie up to Binghamton. So to be able to try to finish uh, some unfinished business because we lost in the finals the year before, to be able to go out there and know that the team was relying on you that night to uh, to get us a win, um, you know, I had fantastic, fantastic team. Obviously, we did go on to win the championship. A lot of guys ended up playing in the big leagues. Two of them that you mentioned were, you know, two of the better defensive players that I ever got a chance to play with. Um, things that I look back on, I obviously remember uh, a one hopper coming off of my foot and hitting off of my foot and getting directed towards Ray Ardoniers at shortstop. It could have been a base hit. Um, what inning? I don't know. I mean, people, uh, I don't know. I think some people maybe lie sometimes when they say they don't realize <laughs> until because I kind of, you know, I kind of knew the whole game what was going on, but you just try to go out there and just make pitches and, uh, and hope for the best. You know, hopefully you get a swing and a miss or hopefully you get them to hit, hit a ground ball right at somebody or whatever it may be. So I was kind of aware of it the whole game. Um, one of the things I do kind of remember was coming up in the uh, <laughs> the top of the ninth and telling the catcher, "Don't worry, just throw three pitches. I'm not I'm not swinging. I'm looking to just get back out there and try to finish this game." And uh, <laughs> sure enough, I swing at the first fastball that comes in there. I said, "All right, maybe I was a little excited. I might have been lying to you a little bit, but let's just get this at bat over with so I can get back out there and try to finish this game." Oh wow! All right, ninety five. You begin the season with the Triple A Norfolk Tides. Continue pitching well against minor league hitting with an ERA of three point one four. You're called up to the majors. Make your big late, big league debut June seventeenth, nineteen ninety five, against the Houston Astros at Shea. Um, walk us through that day. Who gave you the info that you were being called up? What do you remember <laughs> about the the start? Uh, one in which two future Hall of Famers are in that lineup as well. Yeah. Um, funny story about that too. I actually because of news talk uh, and, and sports talk radio up in New York and all the talk that had been going on, I had, um, who was now my father-in-law at the time, was my girlfriend's father, uh, being living on Long Island. He kind of kind of spoiled it, I guess, a little bit in a way, because I guess the news had came out up, uh, up on Long Island or in New York City that I was going to be getting called up. I pitched on Saturday, but they actually called me up a day or two in advance just to try to let me get up there and be in the it was actually it was uh the night before because i remember spending the night in the hotel at the marriott and then pitching the next day um so he had called there in norfolk and said hey you're getting called up to the big leagues and i'm like what are you talking about i haven't heard anything about this 
So uh, I had to go into the office and have uh, Steve Phillips, who at the time was the director of uh, the minor leagues with the Mets, and I had to try to uh, kind of pretend like I didn't <laughs> didn't know that I was getting didn't know that I was getting called up, even though I did know I was getting called up. Um, but obviously, that's something that you work your whole life, uh, and it's one of the most exciting moments of your life. Obviously, I've had children and been married, and there's so many moments that have been great, and including that no hitter. But obviously, that's something that. Up at the time, up to 21 years old, it's something that I had uh, I'd waited so long um, to try to get that moment where you, hey, man, you're actually going to be a Major League Baseball player. And it was always my dream as a kid. So fantastic moment for me. Uh, the game itself, uh, I always say I, I did two things that will never happen again in professional baseball. One of them was that game itself. Um, this might happen again. I gave up five runs in the first, first inning, inning, but um, – I ended up going seven innings and throwing 135 pitches that day. So that's one of the things that I did that I, I believe as long as they play the game, that's probably never going to happen again is the guy throwing 135 pitches his first start in the major leagues. And the second one would have been throwing uh, 200 innings in a minor league season. I don't, I don't think that's ever going to happen again either. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you brought that up because over the course of doing this show for 15 years, there have been times on where we've had guests on when you go back and relive their careers – you wonder, what if that player was born 10 years later? You were definitely one of those guys that fit that mold because above and beyond what you just mentioned, okay, through the minor leagues and that first season with the New York Mets, before you, before you turned age 22, you would pitch 652 innings. So I, that's just unfathomable that, you know, it's cra- 652 innings of professional ball by the time you were 22 years old. Have you ever thought what it would have been like to be born in the era where the pitchers are treated as a commodity on these strict pitch counts and, and made sure that their arms are so protected? And even with all this protection, we see pitchers' arms breaking down, but it, I can't even imagine what you went through. Well, I definitely think that my uh, my career and my arm has a lot to do with the way that things are the way things are handled now um, at the professional level with pitchers. I think that we were, you know, we were tra- we were treated the old school way, and um, I kind of came up at an era where they said that you had to throw 500 innings in the minor leagues before you were deemed um, major league ready. So it was kind of one of those things that <clears throat> because I was doing so well and succeeding, I think that they kind of pushed that on a little bit to try to get to those 500 innings so you could say, hey, he's ready to, he's ready to go in big leagues because if we look back at that time, you know, the Mets were um, their strongest team coming out of a strong era into an era where they kind of struggled and had some, you know, off-field issues and all kinds of things. So I think that, you know, they were looking for the future and with the kind of their own written, unwritten rules that they stuck by with the 500 innings thing, I think that that had a lot to do with it. I think that you know, we're going to push this guy and keep him going. And uh, I do believe the only way you can learn is by experience and being out there. But obviously, um, looking back on it, we probably did a little bit too much too soon. And I've always, I, I've always say this too: Nolan Ryan didn't throw 200 innings for the first time until he was 25 years old, and I did that twice by the time I was 22. So um, again, I think that the game has changed, and a lot of it has to do with uh, my career and maybe Isringhausen and Wilson's career as well, with the amount of uh, the amount of pitches that we threw. You know, a bad outing, that's the thing when you're, when you're successful in the minor leagues, a bad outing for you is, okay, you gave up four runs, but you also went seven innings and threw 110 to 115, 120 pitches. There weren't many games where you went out there, if any, where you went out there and you got, you got knocked out in the second or third inning. You know, you only threw 65 pitches and they beat you up. 
You know, so it was one of those things where every five days you were throwing 110 to 120 pitches. So uh, I think that has a lot to do with the way things kind of change a little bit uh, with the way that they do things. You know, you mentioned the two other pitchers, and obviously Generation K was a big thing here. And, and the Mets have always prided themselves on being built and pitching, whether it be back in 69 with Seaver, Kuzman, and, and Gary Gentry, and then 73, you throw in John Matlack to that mix. Obviously, 86, the entire staff with Doc and, and Ron Darling and you know, Sid Fernandez and Bobby Ojeda. Um, so, and the Mets had a habit of, of really hyping all their prospects. You go back to Sean Abner, you know, Greg Jeffries. How difficult was it to be grouped in that group of three as a staff and put that much, you know, pressure on you guys so early in your career? Well, you know, I, I've always said this. The only pressure I really felt was the pressure of greatness that I had always put on myself. I kind of a, uh, a little bit naively had expected all these kinds of things to happen in my career to where I was going to blow through the minor leagues and do this and do that and yada, yada, yada. And fortunately, and also a little sometimes I think unfortunately, things kind of happen that way. So it kind of gave me a false sense of how hard it is to maintain yourself in the major leagues, um, how, how difficult it is to have the longevity of your career and be successful and took, maybe took things for granted a little bit. So, um, and obviously knowing I grew up a Mets fan, you know, 86 Mets are still my favorite team of all time. So knowing the history of the organization and then getting into the organization and hearing about the other names that you mentioned uh, from, the, uh, from, the, uh, from the earlier teams um, and then getting to know some of those guys, meet some of those guys, you kind of, you know, you want to hold yourself to, man, I got a chance to, to be one of those next guys and be mentioned in the, in the names of, of Seaver and Kuzman and Gooden and, and all the great guys that, are, that you named that, that are just people that I looked up to when I was a kid. So I put that pressure on myself. I never really felt the pressure of, uh, what the media was saying or what the organization was expecting because I kind of expected those things anyway. So it's it just one of those things where maybe the pressure that I felt, I don't know, want to say if it was too much, but maybe just didn't handle it uh, as well as, as I could have because I was a little too young, a little, uh, a little too naive. So there's a saying in football that there's a 100% injury rate, but it also feels like in baseball now there's a 100% Tommy John surgery injury <laughs> rate among pitchers. So what do you make of the surgery that pitchers are having it younger and younger. Is it something that is necessary for someone to pitch at that level at this day and uh, age, the way the ball's thrown? I don't know if it's necessary or not. I think that um, I do believe if you throw, you will hurt. Uh, you will, you know, you're going to feel pain. You're going to be sore. You're going to, that's just a part of it, especially, you know, they say that the hitter has, I mean, the pitcher has the, uh, the advantage, but uh, I don't know, man. These hitters are pretty freaking good, and they can put the bat on the ball, and they can hit it a long way, and everybody in the lineup can um, can hit the ball over the fence. I think maybe 50, 60 years ago that wasn't the case. You know, maybe the guys aren't hitting 60 or 70 home runs like they did during the steroid era, but everybody in the lineup is able to hit 20 or, or more home runs. So I think that the pressure and strain on every single pitch that you do throw um, is that much higher. I think that more pitches are thrown at um, 100% max level to where, you know, when I, even when I first came through, they always said, you know, seven, eight, nine, that's kind of your, your lax uh, inning where you can kind of throw it in there and let them get themselves out and they can't do much damage to you. And uh, especially now with the way things are going to be this year where there's going to be a DH in both leagues, that that's not, that is not the case. You better come out there and you better be throwing hard and you better be putting it where you want it to go or you're going to be out of the game relatively quick. Um, with the young kids, I think that, uh, you know, obviously seeing the velocities that are out there, 
um, from the from the major league level guys now. I think that that, and I do give pitching lessons, and so I have to have talks with people about the weighted ball issue and stuff like that. And um, I think for the young kids, they're trying to do too much too fast and trying to force velocity at a young age, and then maybe overuse at a young age, and that's leading to um, these injuries. And then just the velocity in itself, you know, made to do it, do what we do, throwing that ball anyway. And then when you add the extra stress, because obviously with every mile an hour harder you throw it, that's just more stress that goes on with the arm. So it's just it's one of those things where the arm isn't made to do it. And then when you add the overwork to it that, um, you know, <laughs> it's bound to snap. It's amazing that we've been having this conversation. Mike Marshall came up, you know, the pitcher who pitched like every single day has made these different studies, and it's it's just ongoing. And all these teams have put so much money and research into you know the best precautions for pitchers, and they're still coming up with Tommy John injuries. Um, you get to live out probably one of those most amazing full circle moments. You have two sons, both of which um, no accident. Their initials are LHP, which every baseball fan immediately recognizes. Left-handed pitcher. Uh, your son is part of the center. Marich's team right here on Long Island that won the Class B state final over Seton Catholic Central 10-7 at NYSEG Stadium, which is located in Binghamton, where you started as a minor leaguer. Uh, so what was it like coaching your son while he was growing up, watch him develop into this prospect, and be there at that stadium for that moment? Well, obviously, that was extremely special for me, and uh, my youngest son actually got to go back the following year. Now, we didn't play at the at the excuse me, the Rumble Ponies Stadium, which was the B-Mets when I played there. Um, we actually played at Binghamton University. But to be able to go up there two years in a row and have my kids win state titles, and then uh, for my oldest, fortunately but unfortunately, he didn't pitch in that game because he pitched in the semifinal game. So he played center field um, during, the, during the final game on the, on the stadium there uh, in Binghamton. Uh, so I think he kind of got lucky because he actually got to go out and play in the field other than standing on the mound because at that point, obviously, I was, I was just a pitcher. So it's kind of cool for him to, uh, to go out there. And they, um, you know, they, they fell way behind and came back and scored seven, innings, uh, seven runs in the sixth inning to come back uh, to win that game. So it was kind of one of those things where, man, what a ride. It was great, but it seems like it looks like it's going to be over. And uh, I'll be damned if they didn't score uh, seven runs in the sixth inning to, to come back and uh, – and take the title, and that was a team actually from that area, so they they were well supported that night too. So, but uh, to be there, be back, be back in Binghamton, be back in a stadium that I hadn't been since uh, when I did a little rehab there in 1997. It was, um, you know, <laughs> incredible, just incredible, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll take those memories with me for the rest of my life. So, when you look back at your career, what is it that gives you the most pride, and what is it that gives you the most regret? <clears throat> well, uh, pride wise is. Um, Hey, one percenter, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you, nobody can ever take that away from you. You did something that uh, 99.9% of the, of, the, of the population doesn't get a chance to do, and that's to put on a Major League Baseball uniform and walk out you know, into that dugout and onto that field and uh, to live the dream. So that's something that uh, that's, my, that's my, my most prideful thing when it comes to my career. Um, obviously, man, I could name so many things that I look back on and say I could have done better. I wish I wouldn't have got injured as much. I wish I wouldn't have uh, taken my mental health as, as lightly as I did. Or to, um, you know, there's so many, so many damn things. I, I, I wish I would have taken it a little bit more seriously and didn't just expect things to, uh, to happen for me. But um, obviously injuries derail a lot of things and you start to spend a lot of time in your own mind thinking about, man, why aren't you feeling bad for yourself and why aren't things going the way you want them to? And then, uh, you know, I just wish I would have handled some things differently. 
Now that 1% are line, it's something that Eric Hillman told me, and I think it rings true for every major leaguer, whatever their line is at the end of their career, whatever their stats read. And Hilly told me that whenever he's on an airplane, and he's flying into a town, and as you start to land and you, you come close, you see all the hundreds of baseball fields in all these towns all across America, and you realize how many kids are out on that field, you know, all of which have that dream of making the major leagues. And then you know, it brings him back to that point that, yeah, you know what, maybe it wasn't the numbers he thought he'd want at the end of his career, but all those millions of kids and on those fields, he got to live out something that lots of them never do. So, yeah, that, that is pretty special for sure. Um, aside from your son and some younger players, you've also worked with some Met Fantasy Camp guys, which actually I was out on a field with today, helping them uh, brush up on some of their long dormant skills. So the question is, do you enjoy teaching um, the art of pitching? And is it something that maybe in the back of your mind you'd like to do at the major league level, maybe as a pitching coach down the line? I tell you that would I mean that would be another dream to live obviously to to come a little bit more full circle again and and to be able to put that uniform on again to try to uh, be coaching people um, it's something that I definitely think about I don't know if the game has kind of passed me by because I'm getting so old and it seems like the organizations are going younger and more analytical but um, I think that I have a lot to offer um, an organization and man I would I'd love to be able to put the Mets or, uh, uniform on again to be able to do it in fantasy camp this past uh, this past winter for the first time to put that uniform on again it was so special for me but um, if I'm lucky you know if I'm lucky uh, I would definitely uh, embrace the opportunity to uh, to do that and to try to share everything that I've learned over my successes and failures and experiences and all of the above to uh, to do that but um I don't know if it's passed me by. I hope not, but um, I'd like to get my youngest son, Leighton, through high school and, uh, and then see what happens. You know, I see the work you've done with Larry Goodman. It's a miracle work. I, I, I might, you know, come to you to see. I, you know, I never pitched. I might want to do that. So, uh, Bill, thanks so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. No, I thank you for having me, and uh, it's been a pleasure, and I always enjoy, uh, you know, talking a little bit of Mets baseball and um, especially with some fantasy camp guys. Like I said, I had such a great time down there uh, this past year and got to meet so many good, so many cool people. Some, uh, you know, I, I didn't catch much flack. I kind of expected to catch a little bit more <laughs> flack while I was down there about how, how terrible I was. But uh, for the most part, everybody treated me very well. And that's some, one thing I've always said about Mets fans. Is I, I feel like I've been received pretty well by them. And uh, to be able to work with some of the, some of the people that have, were fans of, of mine when I was a young man and uh, for them to get to know me, it's been, it's been a real pleasure. They look forward to seeing you down there again. Bill Pulsifer, former New York Met, also former Long Island Duck.